All right, let's get started. We're going to get started a little bit earlier today, starting to kind of rein things in uh, for when we meet in person next week, which will be our first week. It looks like rain in the forecast, so uh, it's possible that we might be Zooming again, but uh, who knows? If not, then we will uh, meet at the GDAC, bring a chair, and I believe Josh and Leslie, tell me if I'm wrong, we're going to go back to meeting at 945. Is that correct? Okay, so we'll be 945. So just in case we do Zoom again next week, we're going to be meeting an hour early. All right. So 945. So I think you lose an hour from the spring forward and lose an hour. No? Oh, yeah. Oh, lose an hour from the spring forward and lose an hour on church. So um, wake up early. Send a, a, a message out uh, to you. So let's do a couple announcements we've got. And then uh, I think Aaron and uh, Grant will lead us through worship today. Announcements? Nothing? Josh? Uh, I, can go, I can just say, yeah, just a reminder that showcase is coming up in about a month. That's in the newsletter. So it's April 3rd. It's going to be a digital kind of thing. But this is really an opportunity for you guys to invest in our student leaders for the next year and help prepare them so that we can have a really great season, especially after this COVID year, that we can really go and hit the ground running next year. So just have that in your calendars. It's April, April 3rd at 630. Hey, Drew, can you tell us a little bit about the plan for Sikkim this year? Because I know yeah, that you guys are going to do your own, right? But right now it's pretty exciting. We're going to probably do it in August, actually. And what we're going to do is hopefully get a camp somewhere maybe in Texas or in one of the surrounding states um, and kind of run a camp out and put on Sikkim ourselves. So it's still going to kind of incur a decent amount of costs from our students to, you know, go and pay for going to this camp and stuff but we're going to be able to put it on right before school starts to get people really pumped up. And hopefully at the same time, it's going to be super meaningful. We'll invite everyone we were going to invite last year, plus all of our new invites this year, plus maybe, maybe hopefully some of our core feds and whoever's going to lead core next year so that they're, you know, re-energized and can learn a lot right before they, you know, start school and welcome week happens. So that's kind of the tentative plan right now. We're still figuring out a lot of it. Yeah, that's, um, for those of you who don't know, it stands for Student Institute of Campus Ministry, and it's really our main training source for our uh, college leaders for Focus. So, um, you know, this is one of three big events we have during the year that are kind of fundraising events. Um, we actually have another one coming up, which I don't think we've done a great job of um, announcing, and that's going to be Spring Hita which is our uh, teen fundraiser to send our teens to camp. Now, obviously we don't have any teens. Well, actually the teens that we do have are college freshmen, but we mean teens that are younger than that. Yes. And we have a lot of them at the churches. In fact, we have two uh, fairly large ministries, one CTF at Wiley. And then I don't remember what, if they're still calling themselves next or what, I don't think so at, um, our Garland Church. So when is that? Guys, do you know when the um, Spring Hita fundraiser is? I want to say April 24th, but I can check my email. Yeah, it'll actually start um, like the Thursday before. Okay. So let's see. Sorry, I'm looking at my calendar. Yeah, That's the 24th is correct. So it'll start the Thursday before the silent auction, but like the main live auction will be on the 24th. Yeah. So again, for those of you who aren't 
you know, um, I don't know, really attached or associated with the team ministry. This is another huge fundraiser for us to send uh, our, our kids to camp uh, in the, uh, you know, in July to New Mexico. Um, so, yeah, great. Uh, I think uh, then Hannah's got an announcement and then Josh. Yeah, so uh, we have an announcement for the cohort. Uh, we're going to do a co cohort info session tomorrow, not tomorrow, next Sunday after church at 11 o'clock. We're going to be flexible with the weather, so we'll keep you updated on whether or not it's going to be outside or not because it's expected to rain. But the purpose of the cohort is to build a foundation of biblical knowledge that changes your personal life, your relationships, your work life, and your ministry within the church. And it's eventually going to equip you to take on like a more formal role in your church or ministry. So if you're interested in the cohort, be sure to plan to stay after church at 11 for the cohort info session. And then I've got one. We've been putting together a marriage seminar series um, that's going to be really cool on Zoom featuring couples from around our family of churches so the, the first one will be on april 10th um and it'll be at 3 p.m and this is going to be like a somewhat monthly seminar series um and it's for anyone who's been married six months or more and wants some um basically it's, it's meant for like maintenance and growth and that kind of practical and also spiritual um, uh, kind of maintenance work on your marriage. And so we will be looking to some of the couples who've been in our family churches, who've been juggling life and ministry and marriage for a lot of years now. And uh, it's gonna be really cool. We're gonna break it up by, by topics. And so the first one on April 10th will be from Aaron and Amy Knowles, and it'll be about life in ministry and juggling that being married and being ministers and disciples. And so um, it's going to be a really neat deal hearing from people that um, that we don't get to hear from as often. And so put that on your calendars, April 10th, 3 p.m. And we'll be getting more info about that out later. So this is specifically for, you know, obviously in our church, we've got a lot of young couples. And so if you're already married and um, whether that's six months or something like that, or like six, seven years or something, um, all that whole range, this is, this is for you guys. So um, if you have any questions about that in the meantime, you can definitely re reach out to me and we'll be getting more info out to you guys in the weeks to come. Great. Any more announcements that I'm uh, missing? All right. Just want to remind you too of the, um, just the challenge to give um, more so that we can continue to add staff. Um, you know, if you, we've had some uh, opportunities to talk um, numbers and things like that. And if you, you want to go back and reference those, you can, but you can always talk to any of us as, as a staff. So I'm going to turn that over to uh, Grant and Aaron. Hey, so our worship series for this month is, well, this month, the part of the worship series that we're in is uh, the death or the incarnation and death of Jesus. <clears throat> and uh, so we're going to start off uh, worshiping the theme is the incarnation today. Um and the idea with our prompt this week was that it, it seems like often we kind of treat the life of Jesus as like a myth or like a nice story and not like a concrete historical claim that God became flesh and uh, lived a life as a person. And uh, so we're going to watch a three-minute clip of that depicts Jesus uh, 
really just kind of doing a lot of mundane stuff, like a nighttime routine. Uh, and we, as people who live in time and space and flesh, have a lot of mundane stuff, you know, waiting at a traffic light or going to the store, twiddling your thumbs, that kind of stuff. And I thought that this could be a good way to just contemplate that Jesus lived as a person and not just in these, uh, I don't know, uh, climactic moments that we mostly have recorded for us in scripture. So yeah, we're, we're going to watch the clip. I think Josh is going to play it for us and then we'll, uh, We'll, we'll break into our small groups right, right after that and discuss our usual questions. Uh, what does this convey about the heart of God? What might God be saying to me or to our community? And how could I respond in obedience? So, uh, and do, I guess with stuff like this, there can always be a degree of like, oh, that's not how I would have done it or that's corny or that kind of thing. But um, if you have those kind of thoughts, try to push past them to the, the content of what we're trying to contemplate today. So, yeah, if Josh could get that going, Nikki.
Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. So in a moment, we'll break into uh, small groups, <clears throat> or breakout groups, I guess, and open with a time of prayer, and then discuss those three questions. And you can, uh, you don't have to go through them sequentially, but do try to keep them in your mind as what's uh, focusing the conversation. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Thanks. All right, guys, we're entering into a new section of our sermon series, and uh, it's on the Holy Spirit, okay? And so we're going to do that for the next four weeks, and hopefully this will be a little less heady than some of the Jesus versus God versus Godzilla versus King Kong um, section of the, the sermon series, which I think was pretty heady and kind of difficult, um, but we'll see. So the topic today, at least I titled it Spiritual Warfare in the Modern World. It's kind of a misleading title because I don't even feel like we're really going to talk about spiritual warfare <laughs> that much. I'm not even for sure why I titled that. Uh, so yeah, but I did. And so hopefully we'll touch on it. But I want to generally introduce um, kind of two basic ideas today about the Holy Spirit. And they come directly from his name, Holy Spirit. And so hopefully this will be uh, helpful to you. So uh, to start off, you know, in a classy introduction, um, Joe Dirt, okay, Joe Dirt, uh, in the movie, self-titled Joe Dirt, he's looking for his family, all right, but his family, the one that he loses at the Grand Canyon, he can't find them, and it ends up being that his family are really the friends he meets along the way, okay, including Brandy, of course, including Brandy. Now, this is probably a better analogy for, like, community, maybe, than it is for the Holy Spirit, um, but I'm going to use it for the Holy Spirit. Because the entire time, his family was right under his nose. They were just right there, always. And when he meets his real family, it's a huge letdown. Um, and please stop quoting Joe Dirt in the chat comments, because I cannot stop reading them. All right, thanks. Um, <laughs> so his family is right under his nose, okay? Uh, in the same sense, or same way that the Holy Spirit is really the closest we get to God, on this side of eternity. He's right there under our nose, and yet we're still asking for God to reveal himself to us. Sort of what Philip asked um, to Jesus, show us the Father, that'll be enough. Jesus in this probably just kind of like uh, reaction is like, Philip, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We do this exact same thing, all right? We're on this journey, this pursuit to try to understand who God is, and to try to grow close to him. And God has given us this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is God in us, uh, built a home in us, something that at least as far as the Old Testament is concerned, was a rare occurrence, wasn't a lifetime occurrence. There's a lot of questions about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We're not going to get into it. Even the idea of the Trinity was something the early church fathers debated and talked a lot about, and it really wasn't until the Arian controversy where Arian tried to teach people that Jesus was actually just a human, uh, that even the Trinitarian concept in, you know, fourth, fifth century was sort of uh, more or less agreed upon. Um, and so we're just not going to talk about that. We've talked about that at length in other places, and if you're interested, there's a lot of resources for that. The other thing we're not going to talk about today is the idea of J.I. Packer, which we, we did an entire series on, which is that the, the Holy Spirit is just simply a spotlight for Jesus. That Jesus, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, as we'll read in John 16, 
that the goal was that the spirit would remind you of who he is and how to live like him. Okay. And it's good that we focus on Jesus, of course, but Jesus himself said you would need the spirit to remember me properly. <laughs> so it's not enough to have some historical understanding of Jesus or even um, what we would consider a personal relationship with Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit in us to be close to God. It's as simple as that. Okay. The Holy Spirit reminds us of who Jesus is, enables us to uh, live this life that God's called us to live. Uh, not only that, but in the passage we read last week in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, the Spirit knows our thoughts better than we do and knows God's thoughts. And so he connects us to God in this kind of closeness. So I just want to talk about two things today. And that is just how when we think about the Holy Spirit, we need to think about the Holy Spirit in terms of his power which is really what spirit kind of represented in ancient times. Uh, you had the, the sort of failing physical world and you had this sort of empowered spiritual world, particularly during um, Greek and Roman thought, okay? And then his holiness. So the holiness of the spirit, I mean, he is actually called the Holy Spirit, right? So the holiness and the power of the spirit. So the major question that, uh, you know, I guess, initiated this particular sermon topic was why don't we attribute things to the Spirit's movement in our lives? And what should we and should we not attribute to it? It's a simple question, excellent question, an important question. And there are, I think, a number of answers, but I'm going to focus on two. And, uh, and hopefully uh, that'll be kind of helpful for you. Number one is we don't attribute things to the Holy Spirit naturally because we too often focus on the past or look to the future. We aren't in the present or in the or the eternal, as C.S. Lewis talks about. I want to read a, a, a pretty short um, section of screw tape letters. I'm kind of double dipping here. We did uh, screw tape letters for our cohort this month. And so, of course, I'm going to uh, bring it into the sermon as well, so as not to have to do too much other research. <laughs> now, it, this is very pertinent. So, I just want to read something. And for those of you who are uh, unfamiliar with uh, screw tape letters, this is uh, C.S. Lewis' most hated book by him. He hated writing it. Okay, it's a chapter, thirty-one chapter book that basically uh, covers these devils who are trying to influence a man during the sort of World War I period of time. And C.S. Lewis in this book portrays devils in the most, um, I think, interesting, while also convicting and challenging and realistic way uh, than I think I've ever read. No one else has, has treated this topic of spiritual forces, demonic forces working in the world like uh, this book. And so it's an excellent read. It's a difficult read. You can read it devotionally, um, but it's a very, very, um, I don't know, classic you know, book. One that I go to over and over again, one that we've actually taught from at Denton North. So I'm going to read this um, and then uh, give you a couple ideas here. So uh, Wormwood is kind of the demon in training, all right? And so he's writing these letters to him so as to help him navigate how to, to win this guy's soul uh, over the enemy, which is God in these, these chapters. So he says, we want him to be in maximum uncertainty so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future. 
every one of them arousing hope or fear. There is nothing quite like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Okay. And then I have another one that I want to read. It's a little bit longer here, um, but kind of goes to this, uh, this idea of looking to the future. So the humans live in time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He, th he therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time, which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to experience which our enemy has reality as a whole. It alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. Uh, and he goes on to kind of talk about why <clears throat> our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. With this in view, we sometimes tempt a human, say a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value, for they have some real knowledge of the past, and it has a determinate nature. And to that extent, resembles eternity. It's far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already. So that the uh, thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them. So that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is of all things the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time. For the past is frozen and no longer flows. And the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence the encouragement we have given to all those schemes of thought, such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, communism, which fix men's affections on the future, on the very core of temporality. Hence, and this is tricky, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, greed, lust, and ambition all look ahead. Do not think lust an exception. When the present pleasure arrives, the sin, which alone interests us, is already over. The pleasure is just the part of the process which we regret and would exclude if we could do so without losing the sin. And it's the part contributed by the enemy and therefore experienced in a present this, to sin, which is our contribution, look forward. So the idea that he's getting at here is simply that when our minds are full of the future, we fail to live in the present. Now, I think many of us have some sense of this. But it's partly why we fail to see the spirits working in us. We're just not in tune with what he's doing in me now. We're playing comparison games to the past. Oh, well, I felt the spirits work in the past and I knew he was working then. Or worse, we're anxious about how it will work out in the future. Or we've just sort of given up and said, hopefully it's going to get better in the future. But we're unable uh, to focus on what God is doing in us, in the spirit, in the present, which these demons have, have rightly figured out is the closest we'll get to eternity before eternity. And the future is the furthest away from eternity uh, before eternity. So I will just say that I don't think hindsight has to be 2020. I think <laughs> sight now can be 2020 or at least 2040 with the spirit working in us. We don't have to wait for things to happen and look back at them thinking, I wish I would have done that differently. 
when the spirit of God is speaking to us and working uh, on us now. You look back to the Old Testament and you see when the spirit came on people, he brought power along with it. Joshua, Gideon, Samson, Saul, even that Bezizel guy that made the um, uh, tent of meeting, God literally imbued him, I think that's the right word, with creative power as the spirit came on him so that he could has a, had a sense for building this amazing tent that he wouldn't have had otherwise. The spirit gifted him to do that. Uh, feats of strength, insight and words of wisdom, leadership in dire situations, and all other sorts of skills. The New Testament talks about these things as spiritual giftings. Um, and these spiritual gifts too often we've thought of as simply personal gifts, personality gifts. Well, God imbued that with or God gave me that, and so that's my gifting. But in reality, the Spirit talks about spiritual gifts as being things in the moment, and I don't mean moment and sort of like hour, two hours, day, but in a period of time that build up the church and that are important uh, for that, that individual person's growth or another person's growth around them. And so the spirit has the ability to, in the present, equip us and empower us to do things we would not be able to do otherwise. And this is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is that he gifts us with these things. And many of those of the time, we're trying to work out of our own power, out of our own skills, um, either, you know, um, floored by or um, stalled by our ang anxiety for the future or stuck in our desire of the past, whatever, without a real present understanding of how God is working. And so when we think about spiritual warfare, you know, to me, the, one of the things that's mentioned in the book, which I think is really powerful in the preface, at least um, C.S. Lewis says, you know, the main problem that people have with the spiritual realm is either they be don't believe at all or they believe too much <laughs> that there's no real moderation and so they either think that you know there are these spiritual forces but not actual spirits or they believe that you know every devil is a uh, you know horned uh red stocking wearing joker looking guy uh and if we can make them believe either one we're great but c.s lewis is is devils aren't like that at all they're bureaucrat types clean cut smart intelligent working in the world in ways uh, that are just beyond our ability to understand. They're very powerful forces. Um, and I think that's such a, uh, an interesting kind of way of, of, of framing that and phrasing it, but they do exist. And, you know, just like the uh, famous movie, I can never remember its name though. Um, it's got Kevin Spacey, which I know we shouldn't talk about him anymore. You know, he talks about the devil's greatest trick was convincing people he doesn't exist. Uh, what is that one? The regular usual suspects. Yes, the usual suspects. Gosh, good stuff. And so these are the kind of devils that we're working on, uh, working with. And we just don't think much about this, guys, because it seems silly to us. We're definitely on the side, unless we grew up in a super Pentecostal church. Uh, these forces don't exist. They're not around. There's not really anything beyond what we can see. Uh, and we have to constantly sort of push ourselves out of that silliness. But we do that not, again, by looking at the past or the future, but by looking at moments within. You know, uh, uh, 
our present time period. There's too many coincidences that happen all around us to constantly be justifying them as the spiritual forces aren't at work around us. It's just too many. It's too many random things. And people who are really attuned to the spirit's working will notice those things that, that the spirit and various supernatural entities and powers uh, are doing in the world around us. And it isn't like the horror movies <laughs> that are portrayed. That kind of trickery and nonsense in the screw type letters are just sort of just laughed at. Let people believe that that's how it actually works, that they don't realize that the real stuff that's scary, the insidiousness, insidiousness of changing someone's character uh, is ignored. Um, so yeah, so I think in the spiritual uh, warfare thing, I think one practical thing I would, I would mention here in terms of taking away something from um, you know, this idea of avoiding extremes is that we've gotta be very careful in looking at our present sufferings and present situations um, also as not avoiding the extremes. The constant up and down of I'm in a trough, I'm in a peak, I'm doing well, I'm not doing well. If that's really kind of where we're at, that may be a sign that we're not paying much attention to how the spirit is working. Uh, if we're constantly up and down and up and down and up and down and one day is good and one week's good and the next week's bad and this month's good and the next month's bad, that can sometimes just be a sign that the spirit's sort of moderating force, the spirit trusting that the spirit is doing and accomplishing something in our lives is not there. But just as likely, when we experience a numbness, and actually Tom talked about this yesterday and during our cohort, which I think was such an amazing idea, is that some of us, as we get older, in reaction to the, the natural sort of troughs and peaks of life, we just numb ourselves out. Uh, that's kind of a jaded view of the world around us. We just take a numbing um, approach. I've done this plenty of times uh, over the course of my own personal life and ministry life. Nothing affects us anymore. Nothing's good. Nothing's bad. We just sort of go in these year-long periods of just numbness towards what God is doing and, uh, and who he is. And the spirit, that again, is a great sign and indicator that we're not really in step with the spirit working in our lives. When we allow ourselves to be almost non-emotional about the world around us and about our own spiritual state, um, that's not you know, can, that kind of extreme contentedness is not the kind of contentedness Paul is talking about. So that's the power of the spirit. Next, I want to talk about the holiness of the spirit. So again, we're answering the question, why don't we attribute things to the spirit's movement naturally? And what should we and should we not attribute to him? One thing we should certainly attribute uh, is, is the power that we see in him, in our lives and in the lives of other people and in the world around us. Now, that's the trickier one. And I would suggest that we ought to be very careful of attributing spirit working in the world around us when we're not so good at attributing it in our own lives. <laughs> when people talk about, you know, the spirit causing Hurricane Katrina, which is the most ridiculous idea I've heard in a while, and can't recognize the spirit's own work and their own heart and life, they've got a huge problem. All right. <clears throat> their God has become, uh, you know, their belief system and morality system, not any kind of personal relationship. And that's no good. So the second answer to this question of why don't we see it naturally and what should we attribute is holiness. Um, you know, a lot of us are fed up, I think, in our culture and even in the church and sometimes rightly so with just higher religious arguments and ex explanations of 
you know, grand experience, uh, grand religious moments and experiences and all this other stuff that we can't see and we can't prove. We're just tired of, we want, we want proof. We want concrete proof. We want to know for sure that God is working for him to, after everything that's done and happened, that he puts his stamp of approval on it so that we don't have to have faith and we don't have to think about it. We can just point to it and say, gosh, finally, now I have the proof that I need it. That's just not how God works for a variety of reasons. But there's also a contradiction in this because while we're tired of religious ideas and thoughts and these kind of higher, less practical things, we seem very okay and comfortable with them in the arena of politics and morality. Politics and morality for many of us is not something very practical, is not something we're engaged in on a very personal level. Many of us are engaged on in at a very theoretical and idealistic level. And so there's a little bit of an irony here um, in that we won't accept these things in religion, but do when it comes to politics and morality. I'll explain this a little bit uh, more. Um, actually, I'm going to read first uh, this um, section from Screwtape Letters, which I think is like, oh my gosh, it's too good. It's too, too good. Um, so here we go. So it's actually in the same chapter as that one about making people be anxious. Um, so do what you will, there is going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. Again, uh, uh, the sort of higher demon is talking to Wormwood about their patient and how to deal with them. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors whom he meets every day and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference to people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary. There's no good at all in inflaming his hatred of Germans, of course, this is during World War II, if at the same time a pernicious habit of charity is growing up between him and his mother, his employer, and the man he meets in the train. Think of your man as a series of concentric circles, his will being the innermost, his intellect coming next, and finally, his fantasy. You can hardly hope at once to exclude from all the circles everything that smells of the enemy. But you must keep on shoving all the virtues outward till they are finally located in the circle of fantasy and all the desirable qualities inward into the will. It is only insofar as they reach the will and their embodied in habits that the virtues are really fatal to us. I don't, of course, mean what the patient mistakes for his will, the conscience fume and fret of resolutions and clenched teeth, but the real center, what the enemy calls the heart. All sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved by the intellect, or even in some measure loved and admired, will not keep a man from our father's house. Indeed, they make him more amusing when he gets there. So the idea is, again, to keep a person's behavior in the realm of theory and to keep their ideas on that outmost area where they're not looking at all inwardly at who they are and, and what virtues they actually have. All of their virtues are in the realm of fantasy. Uh, and I, I just, the comedy there, which is a tragic comedy, that people who are evil, flat out evil, are a lot less entertaining in hell than people who have good intentions is such an interesting and terrifying prospect. 
Um, but that's the book. And that's kind of how he talks about these things. Guys, the most important aspect of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament was to convict us and the world around us of sin in regard to Jesus being the benchmark for how we decide those things. People who have the spirit of God working in them are not first powerful and doing feats of strength and wise. They are people who are inwardly growing inward at the most inward part growing to be more and more like Jesus each day. And if we lose that, uh, we lose the Holy Spirit's work in us, that work of holiness, changing us, taking away um, the sinful patterns and habits and reforming us to be more like Christ. That is the Spirit's power in us. It's the Spirit's fruit um, to save us through the things that he's doing. I'm going to read John 16. Actually, let's have someone else read that if you don't mind. Um, find John 16. And we're just going to read 7 through 15 uh, in a moment where his disciples are very disconcerted. They're um, having trouble understanding what Jesus is trying to say about leaving. Uh, he tells them this to hopefully give them hope uh, for his departure. So does someone have that? And we'll read that, John 16. Just go ahead and start reading it. We're going to read 7 through 15. Oh, I'll, I'll read it. Please. Um, but very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, or you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of the world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So there's a lot there theologically, but the point is that when the spirit comes, he will convict people of sin, both the Christian and those who aren't. Um, and while we have this sort of constant conviction, uh, so long as we don't ignore the spirit, uh, the spirit's one of the major roles in our lives is to teach us how to live like Jesus. And he does that. Um, so I'll just say that if we want to know what to attribute to God or not, let's start with asking the spirit how he is working in us and watch and listen. And then we might begin to start recognizing his work in others around us. But we start with the nearest and closest of how he's working in us. And it's okay each day if we recognize, hey, I have not been paying much attention to the spirit in my life. I mean, I was very convicted by reading this. Uh, it has been a while since I really addressed the spirit in my life. And I think it's so interesting. We don't pray to the spirit. We don't really talk much about him, even though he is presented as the nearest piece of God, part of God to us. We need a renewed understanding of the Holy Spirit, that he isn't a trickster and some guy that gives us magic powers, 
um, but he is someone that talks to us, is near to us, leads us both individually and as a community. And we need to listen to him and believe first that he'll speak. And second, uh, that he is constantly active, both in our hearts and minds and in the world around us. So as Paul mentions in First Thessalonians, let's stop quenching the spirit and actually follow him and get to know him. And quenching is a very interesting idea. It's only mentioned there. A lot of different people have a different perspectives on what that might mean. But I think at its most basic level, uh, it's ignoring the closest part of God we have to us and simply trying to frame God in uh, only a historical figure in Jesus or only uh, as this sort of idea, pie in the sky uh, kind, of, kind of thinking. Any questions about that? Zoom. Uh, what? Zoom out. Please. I do. Okay. Well, my wife has one first and she's right next to me. So I saw her hand first. Yeah, she goes first. Disembodied voice, but can you recap your second point? We should attribute holiness to the spirit. You talked about Katrina. Can you like do a quick recap of what your second point is? Yeah, the second point is just simply that when you think about the spirit, um, we tend to think about the spirit and his power. All right. But I think the New Testament portrays the spirit as at least a more important role, more important is a bad way to put this. In fact, it flows from his power is he is convicting us of sin, of being able to be the you know, God in our hearts and minds that is a real time, 24 hour, seven days a week, um, God reminding us of who Jesus is. Okay. You think about this in the Old Testament, you know, why they had the law and the commandments it, it's really tricky to go back and think, so did God indwell people? He certainly doesn't promise it or make it seem like he does. There are moments of it. But even then, that raises the theological question of, well, how will anybody saved in the Old Testament if the Holy Spirit didn't enable them to do this? We just don't have answers to that. But what we do know, at least for us, and in this new age and new covenant, the covenant that God intended from the beginning, the Spirit one of the major things that he's doing in our hearts and minds is making us more like Christ. Um, and we can be a part of that and invite him in, or we can ignore and for periods of time completely um, just not recognize him. And does he still work when we don't recognize him? Possibly. Uh, but is that really any very helpful or beneficial when we don't attribute the very things that we're growing in to God himself? So you're saying like, it's not about attributing these, just attributing these huge, powerful acts that we want to say like, Oh, yeah. that was God doing that to punish people or to reveal himself to all of the world or whatever. Yes. We should focus just as much, if not more on like, what is the spirit revealing to me about my own sin? Right. Okay. Yeah. That the spirit in us, uh, makes a, a big change, I think, for responsibility uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And while it's in very important to recognize that the Spirit is powerful, it's very important to recognize that he's working individually. Go ahead, Justin. Uh, yeah, so like, I'm kind of going off of that same point of like, you know, the Spirit's convicting us, and uh, that's like, that's pretty much one of the main purposes of the Spirit. I think sometimes it's for me, at least, it's really easy to get caught up on just like little things. And sometimes it's really easy to mistake a conviction 
uh, or mistake something that's not really a big deal for a conviction. And so I guess the question is, how do we discern what is God's conviction and what is from the enemy? Just what is like, how do we know that this thing isn't just something that Satan wants us to feel bad about? So we're distracted. What's a good distinguishing point with that? And how do we distinguish that? Does that make sense? Kind of, but I think it just goes simply back to, um, you know, we in that quenching passage in First Thessalonians 5, he talks about not uh, ignoring prophecy, but, but testing it. And I think it goes back to, you know, when the Spirit speaks to us, the Spirit not only speaks to us as if we're like, you know, each individually always need to hear like something really specific to us, although I think it is true. The Spirit is working in us, particularly in gifting, so as to bless and minister to the entire body. And so in, we've got to constantly confirm what the Spirit is telling us, both with each other, but on our own with just who we know Jesus to be. And, um, and that's the whole kind of point there, is that we are not just hearing random and weird stuff that the Spirit told me this, the Spirit told me that. You've heard people kind of say some of those things, move here, move there, take that job, um, doors open, doors close, and you've got to kind of really test those things as what are the motives for you doing this? Um, and are you conveniently, you know, pulling the spirit into that or not? And that's important. It's why we need each other. And it's why we need Jesus as the model. Maybe one more before we're done. Brad, I'd just like to get the pages from the screw tape letters that you read. If somebody could put those in the chat or if somewhere, maybe on the website later or something, oh, please. That's please, stealing. oh, please. <laughs> no, that's stealing. You need to buy the book. We're, we can't. I have it. Book. I have it. I just need to know what pages those are on. Oh, pages, pages. Yeah, that's easy. Um, uh, 28 through 31, just chapter six. And then the other one is chapter 15 which is um, 62 to 65. Thank you. Brad, I have a question real quick. Yeah. You talked about um, the peaks and troughs. You kind of went over that kind of quickly and I was a little confused, but you talked about it being like a sign we're not paying attention to how the spirit is working. Can you clarify that a little further? Yeah, it's an idea that comes from the book when he talks about how God wants us to experience lows and highs. My point was that when all we have are lows and highs and we're constantly going up and going down and there's no stability in our life, uh, that can be a sign that the spirit's really not working, that uh, we're constantly, um, you know, either uh, uh, burdened by our anxieties and fears and or easily excited by, you know, what new thing is happening to me. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's got to be a, a up and down to life. There's no doubt. But if my life is constantly up and down, there's a real problem uh, with that. I can tell you back when um, I was in college, my life was constantly up and down. And a lot of it had to do, one, with depression. Okay, So that was a piece of it that obviously was outside of my control in some ways. And another one was just because of emotional immaturity and just an inability to um, take my thoughts captive, constant negativity, um, and, uh, and, or, you know, just being, um, gosh, how the best way to phrase that just sort of having all of these expectations for how things should go. And then realizing I had no right to have any expectations for how that ought to go. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would have to talk a lot more. I think on that one, I think the, probably don't read too much into the peaks and trough one because it wasn't explained too well. Um, Brad, I have a question. 
Okay, last one. Um, when you find yourself starting to like focus more on the future, uh, how would you bring yourself back to more of the present? Yeah, I'm a terrible person to talk to about that. <laughs> I, You're good. The whole idea of living in the present is something I don't think I've ever even mastered slightly. Uh, so I'm here doing the normal preaching thing, telling you guys what to do while my, I myself am not doing it. Um, you know, I think at least in the small lesson that, that I've learned, and I think other people could talk about this for sure, um, it's a lot about managing expectations. Um, I realized, and I'm going to connect this back to anger for me, um, that when I have expectations about how something should go, and I'm more talking short-term future here, um, that I lose my ability to um, deal with how things actually go. When I was in counseling for anger about a year ago, um, two years ago, um, Eddie just basically said, you know, anger is the difference between expectation and reality. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that just was perfect for me to hear because I was getting angry so much of the time because expectations weren't meeting realities. I think there's a larger lesson in that uh, is that when we begin to have and spend more time thinking about our expectations for the future than dealing with the realities of today, uh, we've got a problem with living in the future and our hopes and our anxieties and all those things coming from, how am I going to get this job? Where are we going to move? How am I going to deal with this? you know, um, a new place or this marriage I'm about to, am I going to end up having kids? Are my kids going to be grown up to be, you know, decent people? All these things that just distract us from doing the very things that we have the ability to do now and in that moment uh, and allowing ourselves to, uh, to get too wrapped up in the possibilities and potentialities. In fact, in that same chapter, in chapter six, he talks about if we can just get people to think in the future, then they'll have all these contradictory worries and confusions, which are impossible to deal with. And God doesn't usually deal in those kind of hypotheticals. And that will help them ignore the one thing that they can manage in the moment, which God does help in usually through the spirits working, whatever fear is, you know, the most immediate or most reality or most real they can actually deal with. But the more we tend to think of that in terms of future planning and things is hard. Now, some of this goes just back to being an anxious person uh, or even a planner, we've got to kind of deal with that as we, we come. But again, the spirit knows us, knows us more than we know ourselves and knows God and meets those two things in the middle. So maybe what the spirit tells me is going to be different than the spirit tells you, not so much in terms of like theology, but in terms of how we ought to deal with this same situation that we're going to respond to differently. And I think that's the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I was just going to say... I was just going to say for me, and I'm, I don't want to oversimplify, but I will because this time is short, um, learning to sit still. I think in our culture, it's very difficult these days because we're surrounded by all the social media and stimulus. So I find that I've, as I've learned to sit still and have gratitude and just focus on the present. I mean, it's difficult because there is so much stimulus coming in. Um, and yeah, just realizing what I have to be grateful for and realizing what I have is today. And there are so many scriptures about just focusing on today, you know, Matthew six, Matthew 10. So if you haven't been getting back into the word, then that that's a challenge to make me slow down and remember what God says is important. And that's today and the people around me and the abilities and the talents that he's given me to love other people. 
and to live by the spirits and slow it down long enough so that I can see the spirit working. There's another question. So my question, when it comes to like checking in with the spirit, um, solitude and like reading scripture is important. Maybe answer this, but like my question is what role does community have in that? Like how should we go about like having conversations with others? Maybe it's bringing up to others if we notice something or maybe we have to check in with ourselves. Like, I guess my question is like, yeah, how do we, like, 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 does community play a major role in that? Or is it more kind of a solo thing? Or is it, yeah, I guess there's a question about the role of community with the Holy Spirit, I guess, too, and how that all works. Yeah. Well, I think the, the short answer is simply that, um, you know, in general, any time that the Spirit is bringing us uh, to be more like Jesus, <laughs> we're going to treat people better, and it's going to be a community benefit. But I also believe that, uh, and one of the things I think is hard in these meetings, but I think we should bring back and have to constantly make space for in our church, uh, is when the Spirit speaks to, to multiple people at the same time for the benefit of the community or gifts someone with something for the benefit of the community. Uh, there's a lot of that going on, and we don't have language much, particularly we don't have the kind of language the, Old, the New Testament had, where we can identify those things, encourage them, uh, point them out, as the spirit working. Uh, and I think that's just, we just don't have the language for it. We don't spend time talking about that. And even churches that tend to be more Pentecostal and talk about spiritual gifts, um, you know, the age old problem uh, that, that the Corinth church had of being more impressed with the charismatic gifts and the gifts that are more noticeable presents a real problem. The gifts of healing and speaking in tongues and, and all those things that are meant, you know, for the benefit of the entire group can become gifts that are almost um, expected from the Holy Spirit and point out that certain people are more holy than others. And so, you know, even Pentecostals, they have the same issue too of, you know, providing a language and a balance and thinking about how the spirit works. Um, but we ought to confirm those gifts and think about them in the context of community. Because if the Holy Spirit is doing something alone in one person in the community, which causes division, or, um, you know, issues, Paul and Corinth, that's the entire letter uh, to the Corinth church is that's not how the spirit works. The spirit is not encouraging you guys to take sides and have factions. That's the opposite of how the spirit works. Spirit's going to be working to bring people together and unify them. And if that's not the case, then what you're experiencing is very unlikely to be the spirit. It's actually the spirit of Satan um, trying to break people down and cause division and fights which I think is an equally important topic uh, for how, uh, you know, here we've explained how the spirit works. What about the spirit of Satan? How does that work in these different demonic forces? And I'll just end with that because I think, again, Screwtape Letters does such a good job of it, uh, is in the, the preface to the book, he simply says the main two things that the spirits uh, um, are portrayed to live by, if there are two things, are one, fear, and particularly fear of punishment. And so most of what they do is simply out of a fear of punishment, a fear of failure, a fear of something, okay? You can see how that's juxtaposed to the spirit of God gives us freedom <laughs> and freedom from fear uh, to where all we have to do is fear God himself, which is a good thing because we have nothing to fear from him uh, if we love him. And then the second, I think the most important is that they're driven by their hunger. 
they want to consume everything in sight. Uh, they mistake love for hunger. What they want is to consume, consume, consume. Um, they want more people on their side, more people to respect them, more, more experiences, more of this, more of that. And the whole entire goal of a demonic force is consuming and consuming that person's will, making them in their own image, whatever that might be. And um, that's pretty challenging, uh, particularly in our age of, you know, the same thing. We're a bunch of consumers and love to consume. And I don't mean products. I mean, just as much ideas and experiences and um, consuming people, um, make sure that they're on our side and that they respect us and all these other things. So I'll end there because, you know, just for the record, I did end under 12, um, but 15 minutes of Q&A. Now it's fine. We can always go as long as we want, but sometimes this becomes a little bit too intense when we have a lot of, a lot of Q&A type stuff. But this is a part also of just responding to the spirit, being able to talk. And when people have questions or thoughts, listening. So I'd be in, in, um, I just want to encourage you for the next four or five of these series, which are on the Holy Spirit, that you take this introductory kind of uh, sermon and begin to apply it, whether that's spending some real quality time during the week, five, 10 minutes, just talking directly to the spirit, asking him to show you things or whether that's taking opportunities in our communal time together to make a space um, beyond the spaces that we already have, like in worship, um, to just mention what you feel like may be on your heart um, or what you think the Spirit's leading you to say, if, if he is. Because that is one of the major roles of the Spirit in the Old Testament, was, was putting God's words into people's mouths and then them speaking those words. All right? So I'll say a prayer, and then we'll be done. God. Uh, it's so overwhelming sometimes to just think about what you've done and what you've created and to try to wrap our brains around it hurts. Give us a sense of peace and encouragement to know that you have put all of this in motion for our good so that we can know you and that we can bless the world around us. Uh, and the things that we don't understand or don't know or can't wrap our minds around that you have placed the spirit inside of us to teach us and to train us on and we love you men all right guys thanks thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast we would love for you to join us on sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week and you can get more information about that at dentonnorthchurch.com